Good morning. Good morning. Uh, let me invite you to open in your Bibles to uh, the New Testament book of First Thessalonians. We've been there several times, and we're going there again because there is a lot there. If you don't have a Bible with you, you're welcome to uh, use one. It should be in the rack in front of you. And if you don't have one of your own, please take that and make it yours. Just put your name in it and take it home and read it. I want everybody to have a Bible. Let's, uh, let's take a minute and pray before we open God's Word together. So, Father, we come now and we, we pray that you will give us ears to hear your voice. You will give us um, minds that understand what it is you want us to know today. And more than anything, we ask you to give us hearts that would receive and love and respond to your truth, Lord. Uh, we pray for your spirit to do that great work. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're resuming our series, Future or Fairy Tale, What the Bible Teaches About the Afterlife. And today we're going to be focusing on a promise Jesus made about the future, the promise specifically that one day he is going to return and he is going to put in a final end to all evil in this world, and he is going to give his followers, those who trust him, he's going to give them eternal joy, which I freely admit sounds a lot like a fairy tale. <clears throat> Think about it, all the good fairy tales, how do they end? Well, the handsome prince comes to claim his true love and to set her free from her predicament, whatever that happens to be, by kissing her or putting the glass slipper on her foot or slaying the dragon. And from that moment on, the two of them live, you, you all know the words, Happily ever after, exactly. Well, the Christian story has a very similar fairy tale ending. Jesus, the king, is going to come, and he is going to come for his church, also known as the Bride of Christ, and he is going to set her free from her predicament, for her lifelong struggle with sin and death. And he is going to slay the dragon. And he is going to then take his bride to his castle, where they will live happily ever after. But this isn't a fairy tale. This is our future. I talked about this in message number two of this series, and by the way, if you miss any of these or any other message and you want to check it out, you can always go to our website 
philida.org, and you can listen or watch them there. But the point I made in that message is that this, the, the biblical teaching about the future, including this particular teaching that Jesus will return, um, this teaching is not based on mythology. It's not based on just a story. It's not based even on philosophical speculation. It is based on an event, an actual event for which there is compelling historical evidence, namely the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You can see the connection in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Paul, the apostle, writing to the believers in Jesus in Thessalonica says, You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven. That is, to wait for him to return as he promised to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So you can see it there. The belief that Jesus will return is intertwined with the historical event of him rising from the dead, his resurrection. And if you are unsure whether that really happened or not, and you have never taken the time to examine the evidence for it, you really ought to do that. You really ought to do that because it's a big deal. It's a very big deal. And it's the foundation of everything we're talking about in this series. Uh, and it's what makes our discussion today about our actual future and not just a fairy tale. But here's the thing. Do you realize that even if you believe or claim to believe that Jesus is going to return, you can still treat it as a fairy tale? Say, how? Well, you can live as if that promise makes absolutely no difference to real life. Because that's what we do with fairy tales. I have never yet met a person for whom the tale of Cinderella makes a practical difference in how they live. Never. Yes, it's a nice story. You know, when you, when you get to the end of it and, and the shoe fits and the prince takes her away from her life of misery, yeah, it's a happy moment. We like the story. But I don't know anybody who thinks about Cinderella as they just kind of go through their daily life. And I've certainly nobody, when they're going through a tough time in life, nobody encourages themselves with the tale of Cinderella. Nobody says, well, yeah, boy, things are tough now. Things are really awful. But hey, things were tough for Cinderella. <laughs> and it all worked out. So hey, nobody does that. Why? It's just a story. It's not real. It's not real. Well, I can do the same thing with the promise of Jesus to return. I can go about my life and not think about it. I can go about my life and not have it affect anything that I do. 
I can treat it as if it's just a story that makes no difference to real life. But that is not how Jesus wants me to think and live. He wants this truth to make a difference. What difference should it make? Well, you can see it right there in verse 10. To wait for his son from heaven. To wait. Now, we've, we've seen this before, but I'm going to say it again. This, this sense of waiting does not mean waiting in the sense of just killing time, like in a doctor's waiting room or something. This waiting means expecting. This waiting means anticipating. This waiting is looking forward to something. And we all know that when you really look forward to something, it makes a difference. It makes a difference in your attitude. It makes a difference in, in how you think, what you think about. Looking forward to something affects how you live. Notice how Hebrews 9.28 reinforces this point. Hebrews 9.28 says this, Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, so that's referring to his first coming, when he came and he died in our place for our sin, Christ who, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He's going to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That raises an obvious question, doesn't it? Are you eagerly waiting for him? Because those are the ones he's going to save. Is that an accurate description of your heart that you're eagerly waiting for Jesus to return? I suspect that for many of us, we would say, boy, I, I'm not sure I'm eagerly waiting the way I should be. Or, and, and some might say, I, I, I don't know if I'm eager for him to come at all. So my, my goal for this message is very simple. It's very simple. My prayer is that God would use our time today to kindle within your heart and within my heart an increasing eagerness for Jesus to return. A longing, a longing to see him come and do what he promised. The way we're going to pursue that is simply to, to look at and think about what God says about this. Because, you know, one big reason we might not be as eager as we should be, it could just be simple ignorance. We just don't know that much about it. Or we just don't think that much about it. So there is a lot we could talk about regarding this, but I'm going to keep it simple. I'm just going to give you three answers to the question, how will Jesus return? How will he return? What has he told us about his return? How is he, how's he going to do that? 
And if that, those simple answers encourage you to, do, to want to do more study on your own or in your group, um, so much the better. So, how will Jesus return? Answer number one, he will return physically. He will return physically, or you could say literally. And what I mean by that is that when Jesus said he would return, he wasn't using a figure of speech. That's not a metaphor. And he wasn't referring to a spiritual experience, like the spiritual experience of him coming into our lives. Now, that is gloriously true that he does that. It is gloriously true that when we receive Christ by faith, he comes and indwells us by his spirit. It's gloriously true, even though it's hard to wrap our minds around. Look at John 14, 23. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. And if you go and read the context there, he's talking about the coming and dwelling by his spirit. So that's, a, that's true. That's a spiritual coming of Christ. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something different. It's his promise to return to this world. Notice John 14, 1 through 3. Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So this coming involves him coming in and taking his people to his father's house. He's going to actually do that. He's going to literally do that, take his people. And that's something to eagerly look forward to. You know, there are, there are things the Bible teaches about the future that are frankly rather mysterious. And there are things about it that, well, sincere believers in Jesus can disagree about the details. And they do. And, and, and legitimately so. Because for whatever reason, that particular aspect is just not unambiguously clear. This, however, when it comes to Jesus' promise to return to this earth literally, physically, there really isn't any room for a legitimate argument. He said it many times. All the authors of the New Testament say it many times. Paul here in 1 Thessalonians mentions it in every single chapter of this book. Again and again, we are told Jesus is going to return to this world physically, literally, and he's going to bring God's plan for this world, for humanity, to its ultimate fulfillment. Now, we've looked here in 1 Thessalonians, Hebrews 9, John 14, 
that's just the tip of the iceberg. Here's just a sample from the rest of the New Testament, okay? I think all of these references are on your note sheet. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13, we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 5.4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now look especially at Acts chapter 1, verse 9. This records the last time Jesus was with his disciples before he returned to heaven. Notice what it says. When he had said these things, as they were looking on his disciples, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, meaning the sky, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come, notice, in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He's going to return the same way he went, physically. He will return physically. Second, truth. Or answer to the question, how will Jesus return? He will return unmistakably unmistakably, which being interpreted means you won't be able to mistake it <laughs> for anything other than what it is. Back in the day when people used to give each other directions on how to get to places <laughs> before you could just tell your phone and have that lovely robotic voice tell you how to get there, if you actually ask for directions, people would tell you, you know, well, go here, turn there, look for this. Um, and and one, of the, one of the phrases that would be frequently attached when people would get, give, a, give directions would be these words, famous last words, you can't miss it. <laughs> Any of you ever had those? You can't miss it. Oh, yes, I can. <laughs> yes, I can. And I often have. Yes. I've missed many things I was told I couldn't possibly miss. Okay, listen, listen to how Jesus describes his future return. Matthew 24, 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then... All the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. You can't miss it. You will not miss it. It will be unmistakable. If you're old enough to remember if you actually lived through the events of 9-11, 2001, you were old enough to remember th that day, you know that something can be big enough to get the attention of the whole world. Because on that day, 
everything normal came to a halt. Everything. I mean, regularly scheduled events were canceled. All commercial aircraft were grounded for several days. I, I don't remember how many days, but I remember going outside and how weird it was. There was not a single plane in the sky. TV programming was completely preempted, totally consumed with news coverage. And conversations with other people, people talked of little else. The events of 9-11 seemed to change everything, at least for a while. When Jesus returns, it's going to be like that, but on a far greater scale. Everyone will know. Everything will stop. Everything will change. And not just for a little while. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. What is normal will become completely different because Jesus will be here and he will take up his rightful authority and rule as King of kings and Lord of lords. And we will all stand before the judge and he will put an end to evil forever and everything's going to change and it's never going to go back to the way it was his return will be absolutely unmistakable and we need to be ready third answer he will return personally personally Now, we, we saw this in John 14, 3. He said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. But you can also see it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. Notice, for the Lord, that's Jesus in this context, for the Lord Jesus himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. The Lord himself will descend. The Lord himself will gather. From that time on, we will always be with him. Never, never, absolutely never let yourself believe that being a Christian is all about believing the right things or that it's all about doing the right things. Never. Yes, those things are important. It's important to believe the right things. It's important to do the right things. But that is not the heart of what it means to be a Christian. That is not the essential core. The heart of it is knowing Jesus Christ personally. Personally. As he prayed the night before his crucifixion, this is eternal life. This is it. 
This is what eternal life is, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, knowing him personally. And if when you hear that, you think to yourself, how? How can I, a fallible, messed up, limited, sinful human being, how am I supposed to know the Son of God personally? Hear the good news. He has taken the initiative to know you. He has done everything necessary, everything that needed to be done for you to know him. You simply have to respond. John 1.12, to all who received him, to all who welcomed him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children of God, do you hear how relational that is? That is knowing him personally as a child knows his dad or mom. Now, it doesn't mean you know everything about him. Don't hear that. Don't hear, well, i got to know Jesus personally. So if I don't know everything that is, there is to know about him, I, can't, I don't really know him. No, 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 no. You don't even know the people in your life who are your good friends. You don't know everything about them. I've been married for 35 years. I'm sure there are things about Karen I still don't know. It's an ongoing discovery. It's an ongoing process. So it doesn't mean you know everything, but what it means is you know him as a person. There's a relationship. And when Jesus returns, he is going to personally gather to himself those whom he knows personally and those who know him personally. And the flip side of this The flip side of this is described in some of the most awful words in all of the Bible. Matthew 22, or 7.22. Jesus says, on that day, when he comes, on that day, many. That, That word terrifies me. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did they know who Jesus is? And cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Lord, we did all this amazing stuff for you. And he will, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That that ought to make everybody's heart tremble. I never knew you. you. You know what makes the difference between works that God accepts and works that God rejects? Knowing Jesus. That's the only difference. Knowing Jesus. To be known by Jesus relationally, to be known by him and to know him is the most important thing there is. There is nothing more important than that. I don't know what else is on your agenda today or this week or the rest of your life, but nothing is more important than this. Knowing Jesus personally. 
And one of the evidences, one of the evidences that we are known by him and that we know him is that we are looking forward to his return more and more. More and more we want to see him, more and more we want him to come for us personally. Does that describe you? Does that describe you? And if it doesn't describe you, do you want it to? Do you want it to? The people we most want to see, think about it. The people we most want to see when we're not with them are the people who are most important to us, right? The ones we know, the ones we love, the ones we cherish, those are the ones we think about. Those are the ones we want to be, we miss them when we're not with them. Those are the ones we long to see. If you don't long to see Jesus, if you don't long to see him, it means either that you do not yet know him, you have not yet come to know him, or you don't know him very well. And the glorious good news is, the gospel is, Jesus has done everything necessary for you to know him and to get to know him better. And the more you know him, the more eager you become to see him, the better you know him. I'm going to share a quote from Pastor John Piper. Uh, This was a comment he made on Hebrews 9.28. That verse was earlier where it says, Jesus is going to return to save those who eagerly wait for him. Listen to this. He says, there's a phony faith that claims to believe in Christ but is only a fire insurance policy. Phony faith, quote, believes only to escape hell. It has no real desire for Christ. In fact, it would prefer if he did not come so that we can have as much of this world's pleasures as possible. This reveals that a heart is not with Christ, but with the world. So the issue for us is, do we eagerly long for the coming of Christ, or do we want him to stay away while our love affair with the world runs its course? That is the question which tests the authenticity of faith. I almost didn't share that. I've been debating it for a while. Because I know those of you with sensitive consciences, when you hear statements like that, you immediately assume you're not really saved because you don't long for Jesus nearly as much as you should. And it, it propels you into a dark night of the soul. But what settled the question for me was that word many in Matthew 7. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. Many who sat in church. Many who heard the gospel preached many times. Many who did amazing things. All in the name of Jesus. And he said, I never knew you.
you need to know him. You need to know him personally. And if you don't, if Christianity for you is coming and getting a good moral lesson so you can be a more moral person, so that you can do good things or you can look better, that's not it. All of it must flow out of a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. And he has said it before, he's done everything necessary. You just need to respond if you never have. And so I'm going to pray, and I'm just going to invite every single one of us to do business with Jesus. And maybe your prayer would be very simple. Lord, I need to know you, and today I realize I don't really know you, but I want to know you. Please, come into my life. I want to receive you. I want to welcome you. I need you to forgive my sin because I know that when you come as you promised, if it's up to how righteous I am, I will not be one of your people. I need a righteousness that you alone can give me. So please give that to me today. You died, you rose again to bring me to God. Bring me to God today. Or you'll say, Lord, I do want you to come a little bit sometimes when I think about it, or I'm not too busy thinking about other stuff, but I need to be more eager. I need to long for your presence to actually be here. So increase, increase my knowledge of you, knowing of you relationally. So I'm going to be quiet. Let's each do business with Jesus. However, his spirit is inviting you to do that. O good shepherd, seek and save the lost. Lord Jesus, let there be no one in this room to whom those horrible words in Matthew 7 will be addressed. May there be nobody here who hears, I never knew you. Let it not be me, because I know preaching a sermon that people like is not the same thing as knowing you. Let it not be anyone here. Oh, Lord, let us all know you. Let us all be your children. Let us all long for your appearing. We ask you to do this, not because we deserve it, but because you are gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding, overflowing in love and faithfulness. Lord, cause your love to abound in us. 
may we every day be more and more eager for your coming. May we eagerly anticipate your coming. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen.